this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i'm your host g sampath after 2 years of the pandemic just when people were hoping for a semblance of normalcy the world has been rocked by a massive war that could have catastrophic effects way beyond the conflict zone Russia's actions against Ukraine have already led to massive displacement with an influx of hundreds of Ukrainians into the European Union countries. With Russia itself facing unprecedented sanctions, the lives of ordinary Russians could get quite difficult and with world trade disrupted by the embargoes on Russia, food shortages and inflation are likely to rise in different parts of the world. But one question that keeps popping up is could this war have been avoided? What exactly is Russian President Vladimir Putin's game plan? Why did he not stick to the path of diplomacy instead of launching a full-scale war? How will this war affect his position within Russia? And what is the thinking and mood in Russia at the moment? To help us get some answers to these questions, our guest today is someone who is right now in Moscow. Daniel Bochkov is a strategic expert with the Russia International Affairs Council, a Moscow-based think tank. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Daniel, you're in uh, Moscow right now. What's the mood on the streets? What are people saying? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the program today. It's a great pleasure. First of all, I would like to say that I represent myself, and so the ideas which I'm going to raise. Uh, are not uh, the position of the Russian International Affairs Council, neither the position of any other organization or official uh, body within Russian Federation. So, answering your first question, I would like to say that actually, from the very first day uh, of the operation started, uh, people, of course, got uh, themselves in kind of uh, misunderstanding of what's uh, what was going on. Uh, although the president, of course, uh, spoke uh, publicly via his uh, various, and uh, actually there were already several uh, uh, televised addresses to the nation, and he portrayed uh, the aims of the operation, and he said uh, that uh, uh, the whole uh, situation was about uh, denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine and protection of uh, the. uh two regions which had been recognized officially by Russia before the operation was launched still many people found themselves in a kind of uh, misunderstanding of the situation because uh, they were not uh, quite uh, clear uh, what uh, would happen next and actually uh, today the sentiment is pretty much the same that uh, there are some people who uh support uh everything which uh, is going on and some people who are against it and so uh, what is uh, the most uh, difficult for any expert who observes uh, the international relations and international politics today is uh, that uh, we don't have enough uh, statistics about uh, the uh, population of uh, Russia uh who stand for this operation or who stand against it uh what we know uh, so far is that uh, the state owned uh, pollster uh, published research identifying the public opinion to be about uh, 65 plus percent 
for this operation. And so all the other people are against it. Uh, but uh, still uh, not so much time uh, has gone from the first day uh, of the operation being launched uh, to make some concrete uh, conclusions on the issue. But in general, of course, people feel a little bit uh, nervous about what's going to happen next because, uh, of course, all this situation, as you uh, mentioned in the introduction, uh, can bring to a lot of economic uh, disturbance in the future. And so people try to understand how they can adjust to a new reality and how they can uh, save their money, how can they um, help themselves to find a better place uh, in a, an absolutely new uh, environment, be it domestic or even international. Right. Uh, you said that uh, you 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 don't have access to uh, real statistics about the mood of the people, uh, uh, which is of course a valid point. But at the same time, we are seeing uh, certain reports uh, which are coming from the Western press. Uh, one of them said that uh, quite a few oligarchs have been taking flights uh, out of uh, Moscow to Israel. Then there are reports of a big protest in St. Petersburg with photographs of people uh, taking a march. And then there is a new law which has been passed uh, saying that there will be a jail term of 15 years for spreading fake news about uh, the military's uh, uh, performances and anything about the military operation. So does this suggest that the Kremlin is worried about people criticizing these actions and so on? Well, a good uh, question. I, I actually, I think that, uh, as I have already mentioned, uh, that, of course, there are uh, like two groups uh, of uh, people, uh, the country. I can't say that it has uh, split into two equal, uh, equally sized uh, groups, uh, uh, which can be calculated by millions. No, uh, because we don't have enough. Uh, information about that. But anyway, of course, there are uh, two groups of people, which we don't know how, how many people each of them constitutes of. But anyway, uh, the one group supports uh, this operation, and the other uh, is against it. And I think that it's normal. It would it, it could happen to, to any country which faces uh, such kind of uh, challenges. And uh, it's a key situation. Of course, there are people who uh, would like to express their opinion, who would like to demonstrate that they are not in favor of what's going on. And of course, of course, this uh, is uh, the point which brings them to the street. And uh, you mentioned correctly that, yes, today uh, the new law has been passed on this issue, uh, prohibiting all the uh, fake, uh, as it says, all the fake information concerning the Russian ongoing operation. And as Russian authorities uh, clarified uh, this point, uh, the law aims to prevent uh, public opinion from discrediting uh, the military. I mean, uh, not the operation itself, but uh, the people who, uh, present, who, present, who are present at the uh, battlefield now. And I think that uh, it also might be a point to some extent, because uh, uh, those people are following orders. And uh, to say that uh, those people are kind of uh, not, uh, let's say, good people, it's uh, also uh, not uh, correct uh, speaking about the domestic situation in the country. Uh, although, of course, Western media uh, says and describes uh, Russian troops in very different manners. 
uh, for Russian uh, people, it would be a, a kind of uh, not a quite tolerant and c correct way of addressing their own troops. And so that was, as far as I got it, uh, that was uh, the point of the law which has been uh, passed. Uh, but you're right that, of course, uh, there are, uh, it's always been in this way. Uh, each military uh, operation in the history uh, brought uh, a lot of sentiments uh, among people who are for peace, who are, uh, who want to promote uh, the peace among nations, and those who uh, see that uh, their country uh, might have been offended in some way or its national interests uh, have been compromised. And it also happened a lot in the history of the United States when the war in Vietnam took place and the Iraq invasion, etc. So it's it's normal situation. I think that there are those who want to uh, oppose such kind of uh, activities and those who think that uh, it's the only way out of the stalemate or of the uh, current uh, international situation in which Russia has found itself. So I think that, yes, the sentiments are quite uh, the same. And uh, you're right uh, saying that there is no kind of national solidarity on this point, of course, because uh, I think that in any situation, uh, in, in the situation like that, it's very hard to achieve such kind of unity among all the people. Right. I think you, you made a, an interesting parallel here uh, between the anti-war protests in St. Petersburg and, of course, uh, the anti-war protests uh, against the Iraqi invasion uh, in the U.S. and uh, against the Vietnam War in the U.S., which were really quite big protests. And, of course, there will be uh, people against the war and there should be as well in every country. Moving on to another uh, subject, which I think is close to the heart of this entire uh, a discussion. I listened uh, closely President Putin's one-hour-long speech, one of the many is given, I think, uh, before the uh, actions uh, against Ukraine. And many analysts uh, see uh, in his speech evidence that Putin doesn't see Ukraine as an independent country with its own history and sovereignty. And he wants to make it into a satellite of Russia, you know, occupy it and so on. Even the Ukrainian president has been saying that Russia wants to basically take over Ukraine and occupy it. So is this what uh, this war is about, basically? Is this what it is about? Uh, well, uh, of course, I'm not uh, an advisor to the president to read his mind. But uh, as far as I uh, understand what he was, uh, what he is, uh, is saying today and what he uh, was saying some time ago, uh, so his point is that uh, actually... Uh, and, and he also mentioned, has mentioned it in his speech, that uh, the Ukrainians' uh, sovereignty and Ukraine as country has been uh, corrupted. So I mean, uh, in terms of its uh, unity, uh, uh, the legal structure, he says that basically it's a failed state. And uh, why he brought this point, uh, he also unveiled it a little bit later in his talk. He said that uh, Ukraine lost its uh, sovereignty when it decided to get rid of the uh, eastern part of Ukraine. So those two republics which were uh, fighting the Kiev authorities for eight years. And as President Putin says, that was the point which uh, brought uh, Russian troops now uh, to the territory of the country because uh, those republics uh, were never recognized, of course, by Kiev as independent entities. 
but uh, they didn't want to be a part of Ukraine anymore after the uh, after the revolution which uh, happened in Ukraine in 2014 when a new uh, regime came to power and President Putin says that uh, it was actually kind of cool. So it, the the change of reg- regime was not uh, legally uh, conducted. And so uh, I think that uh, the idea of Ukraine as a failed state, uh, which, uh, which Putin actually portrays, uh, stems from uh, that time that uh, Ukraine uh, changed its uh, govern- governance and new uh, officials came to power. And uh, the uh, escalation on the eastern part of the country appeared. And so for eight years, uh, that escalation has been just a gain in momentum. And now it led, it has brought us actually to uh, today's moment when Russia uh, started actively addressing this point because Minsk agreements obviously haven't brought the results which they were planned for. And Russia decided to uh, start behaving more actively on this issue. And we remember that from, I think, from the late part of the uh, previous year, uh, this uh, escalation uh, appeared and uh, Russia started uh, conducting a lot of negotiations with Germany, with France. And at, at some point, these negotiations also uh, didn't bring any uh, results and any solve to this uh, conflict. And so uh, Putin said that it was uh, the final straw and he uh, just couldn't uh, let it uh, drag on anymore. And so the situation, this recognition of republics happened. And of course, after uh, these uh, two uh, self-proclaimed republics were recognized by Moscow as independent entities, of course, uh, Ukraine actually, uh, in terms of uh, uh, understanding from uh, the Kremlin, lost its kind of sovereignty because uh, two republics, which used to be a part of the territory of Ukraine, just uh, stopped being uh uh, the part, uh, two parts of uh, the entire country, and so of course uh, it uh, led it led to the next step. And Putin actually, if you remember, this operation was launched uh, in order to protect those uh, two republics uh, from, uh, like, from Ukraine, uh, bringing them back. And uh, I, I think that it can be also uh, it can also be a kind of sign. Uh, to understanding Russian sentiments, because in Russia, a lot of uh, public opinion centers, uh, state-owned and independent ones, said that uh, more than 50% of people were in favor of recognizing those two uh, self-proclaimed republics as independent entities. And if we move further on to the point that the operation was launched in order to protect those republics, so maybe... The conclusion can be made that uh, people would also feel kind of sympathetic to the people living in those two republics, and so the operation then is uh, legitimate. So it's uh, it's understandable by people. And at the same time, it's also interesting to point out that uh, for the several weeks, uh, for the last several weeks, uh, the approval ratings of the president were on the rise as well. And it also gives us kind of uh, not direct, but still kind of direction uh, to think that uh, a lot of people in the country feel uh, really sympathetic to what's going on in the eastern part of the country, uh, I mean, of Ukraine. 
and so they can uh, tolerate uh, even those losses which uh, this operation can uh, bring to them in terms of economic um, disturbances and uh, uh, so decrease in quality of life, etc. Right, but uh, as you as you mentioned, uh, there might be popular support for uh, recognition of the two independent, self-proclaimed independent republics. Uh, and initially, we thought uh, that was probably uh, the, the the operation was all about in the sense of securing the security and the sovereignty of these two uh, regions of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. But then we found we find uh, that the Russian forces have moved way beyond uh, these two republics. It, it's no longer about securing their security or protecting the the ethnic population there, but it's also gone all the way to Kiev. And and even from the south and so on, so it's it's going right to the heart of Ukraine, uh, into territories which are like a majority Ukrainian population. And we have seen that uh, if you look at sovereignty as the will of the people, Ukrainians themselves have been uh, uh, fiercely opposing uh, the Russian forces. So how do you explain or understand the expansion of this operation from securing the sovereignty of these two self-proclaimed republics to something which is way beyond uh, the territories of these two regions, right into the center of Kiev itself. Well, absolutely right. Yes, so that's uh, what's uh, going on on the ground, that yeah, Russia uh, gets uh, deeper into the territory of Ukraine. And the point here is that, uh, as far as I understand what's uh, happening there, is that uh, we um, didn't have, you know, a very clearly uh, clarified line, kind of a combat line, or any frontier between the self-proclaimed republics, militia, and uh, the forces of Kiev. And that's why uh, it, would, uh, it, it was actually impossible for Russia to guarantee the security of those two republics uh, with, without uh, making sure that the uh, regime in Kiev uh, would not be uh, anti-Russia and would not be anti-those republics. And so I think that uh, that's what uh, what drives uh, Russia in deeper into this confrontation is that they uh, just can't uh, know uh, where to uh, stop on which frontier because there is no there is no line actually uh, there uh, to make sure that uh, once they establish uh, the control of the territory of those two republics that uh, Kiev authorities would not launch. Uh, attack and would not try to uh, reclaim those territories back. And uh, of course, uh, Russia says, uh, at least uh, from the very start of this operation, Russia has been uh, continuously repeating that it's not going to leave its uh, troops, its troops uh, on the territory of Ukraine once uh, everything is uh, done, once the aims of the operations are achieved. And so, of course, Russia uh, would not, uh, w- wouldn't be able to guarantee the security of those two regions without making sure that the regime in Kiev would not uh, try to uh, reverse all of this uh, back, for example. And another point is that Russian own security, as if you could uh, look at this situation earlier, Putin also claimed that the whole operation, besides uh, making sure that two regions are secured, uh, the whole operation is also about Russian national security, security and he uh, makes the point that NATO has been expanding 
uh, over the last decades closer to the Russian borders, and that once it controls the territory of Ukraine, so Russia actually can't stand uh, any possible uh, attack from NATO uh, if it's launched from the territory of Ukraine. And so uh, Russia believes that uh, it should, uh, it must uh, uh, guarantee that uh, Ukraine would be uh, a buffer state. So it would be, uh, in, uh, it would be independent, but it would be neutral. So it would not be pro-NATO, pro-West, uh, and it would not be anti-Russia. So, and that's the point, at least, uh, which is publicly broadcasted now. And uh, the idea is that uh, Russia doesn't install uh, its own uh, officials there. I mean so that the, uh, that Ukraine is not going to be governed by Kremlin officials. It's going to be people uh, from the ground, uh, local people. But you are absolutely correct saying that the question of uh, Ukraine population and their support to those people uh, arises. So uh, would uh, Ukraine support uh, the regime which is elected uh, under the monitoring of Russia and of the Kremlin? So that's another big question, and we don't have an answer to it to that yet. As we also don't have an answer to the final goals of the operation, we have been just uh, uh, hearing a lot of information about denazification, uh, demilitarization, uh, and uh, making sure that Ukraine is not uh, is not anti-Russia. But how it's going to be uh, achieved, it's, uh, it it remains also not quite clear point uh, because uh, the only way which I see how it can be done is, of course, why a complete reshuffling of the Ukrainian government system uh, on all, all of the layers, uh, starting from the regions uh, up to the uh, federal level, because otherwise Russia could not uh, be sure that once it leaves the territory of the country, for example, because the operation obviously cannot, long, cannot last for forever, it should stop at a particular moment. And so once Russia pulls back its uh, troops and leaves the country, so what's going to happen? And it, it should be uh, 100% sure that the uh, authorities which uh, would govern over the country after the operation is over uh, are not anti-Russia. And uh, so uh, it only can be done uh, if, uh, the new, um, if the new authorities are elected and if uh, under Russian monitor, I think, because uh, I don't see any other point uh, how uh, the elections could be organized if Russia doesn't control them. So it means that anyone could uh, gain uh, control of the country, and Russia cannot guarantee that these this people would be uh, would be pro-Russia. And so, yes, it's a big question which is still not addressed, and uh, we'll see how it's going to evolve. But my expectation is uh, that at the end, uh, some kind of new uh, Ukrainian uh, governance is going to be presented uh, to the to the public, and uh, so we'll see how it all finishes at that point. Right now, moving on, you spoke earlier uh, just now about uh, the situations that could arise once uh, the operation is finished and and the Russian military forces pull out. But speaking of uh, the Russian military effort, it it looks like from what you've seen so far. Uh, 
the the progress has been less than uh, what uh, Russia would have anticipated. I mean, there have been lots of reports uh, which seem to be documenting poor planning, uh, supply chain errors, logistical uh, uh, gaps. And we have seen numerous videos of uh, abandoned uh, tanks that have run out of fuel, uh, soldiers who didn't know that they were going into a real battle. And of course, the biggest question I would like you to sort of address is, uh, after so many days, why uh, hasn't Russia been able to achieve aerial superiority over a, over a Ukrainian uh, air force, which is supposed to be much smaller and weaker? Yes, so starting from the second part of the question, uh, as far as I understand the situation, uh, Russia, Russian uh, aim was not to destroy the whole country uh, to the scratch. Of course, Russia could, uh, could uh, have launched air raids by its military jets and just uh, destroy the whole cities. Uh, but it uh, could uh, lead to a lot of losses and casualties among people. I mean that, for example, if Russia would uh, make sure that uh, Kyiv is under its full control, so it could just launch an air attack from uh, dozens of jets and just uh, destroy the whole city. But I think that if Russian final uh, aim of this operation is uh, to somehow try to find uh, a peace with Ukrainians, because uh, obviously Russia doesn't want uh, U- Ukrainian people to fight against Russia till the end of the history. Of course, Russia sees it uh, as a way, as a new chap, as a new chapter of uh, both uh, people's uh, relationship. And I, I think that Russia decided not to conduct such kind of aggressive operations, uh, bombarding the cities and destroying uh, each person living there, just to avoid this kind of uh, absolute disaster to the relations between Ukrainians and between the Russians. And I think that it's the first point. And it could also be, of course, a point why Russia doesn't move that fast. Because if Russia just launched air raids uh, on each city it wants uh, to uh, take under its control, uh, it would lead to severe casualties that just millions of people would die. Uh, but ha- haven't there uh, already been serious raids on Kharkiv, for example? We've seen lots of images of destroyed civilian structures and so on. Yeah, uh, the point here is that, you know, all the reports which we have, it's just journalists' reports. Unfortunately, we don't have international monitoring uh, bodies on the ground uh, because Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe has left uh, the country. Uh, after this uh, escalation happened. And so we have just uh, the coverage of these events by uh, Western media, which broadcasts from the Western part of this of the country without uh, having actual presence on the ground in the Eastern part. And the same we have from the Russian side. So Russian television just broad- broadcasts the images from the Eastern part of the country without direct access to the Western part. And so we have just, you know, two absolutely... Uh, different uh, representation of uh, the events going on there. So we have just a presentation of the Russian uh, television and of the Western mainstream media. And I think that truth should be found somewhere in between, because of course each part uh, is interested and motivated by making a particular emphasis on exactly uh, its own uh, kind of motivations. And I think that, yeah, of course, there were a lot of photos and a lot of pictures of what's going on there. And Russian television showed a lot of uh, pictures and photos of Ukrainian army uh, also launching attacks. And because of 
uh, as Russian television sa- uh, says, uh, Ukrainians uh, sometimes use uh, the missiles and military equipment in the way to provoke international outrage uh, onto Russia. So they just pretend uh, it to be Russian missiles, but actually they fire them uh, on their own. So I-, I just mean that if we would quote each of the parts, we would not find any uh, solution to the problem at all. Uh, And unfortunately, since we don't have an international observation there, international organizations, whether it's the United Nations or uh, Organization for Cooperation in Europe, so it's difficult to make any concrete conclusions. But what I uh, think, uh, just as uh, observing the situation from the distance, uh, I think that, of course, the escalation, uh, the more days uh, we conduct negotiations, the worst situation is becoming on the ground. Because uh, people uh, got very tired of uh, the continuous uh, bombardments and continuous fire exchanges of the Russian troops and Ukrainian troops. And of course, a lot of people suffer on the ground. And I think that the only way out nowadays is uh, to try to find uh, any kind of compromise. But here the other problem starts. Because as far as I see the negotiation process going on, the compromise is not looming on the horizon in any way. Because Russia, just today President Putin spoke to his uh, German counterpart, uh, uh, German Chancellor, and Putin stressed again that uh, Russian demands stay unchanged uh, in terms of the third round of negotiations which are going to happen next week. And the demands uh, are about, again, the recognition of Crimea, the recognition of the two independent republics, I mean the recognition by Kiev authorities. And uh, President Zelensky said that, uh, also today it's his new statement, that he is also not going to conduct negotiations in the way of Russia demanding something. So he would like it to be in some other way. And uh, um, he also stressed that Ukraine is not going to uh, lose its sovereignty and it's not going to tolerate any changes to its territorial integrity. So it means that actually if uh, both sides uh, continue negotiations in this way, uh, it's a complete non-starter because uh, Zelensky actually contradicts uh, completely to what Russia uh, claims. And so no one wants to make uh, any concessions. And uh, the only point here, I think, is uh, just to make sure that uh, we have less casualties on the ground, and for this reason, these humanitarian corridors were established uh, during the yesterday's second round of talks, and it's actually one of maybe uh, very few positive developments going on on the ground that people can leave uh, the cities if they want, and that they can find some some other shelter, you know, whether it's in other parts of the country or abroad. Right. Just to go back to this military uh, operation uh, side of things, did uh, Russia underestimate uh, the kind of resistance uh, uh, that they got or would get from the Ukrainian forces? I mean, did they expect this level of resistance? Uh, Well, you know, I think that uh, we actually know nothing about this question and also the first part of your previous question about why Russia uh, advances so slowly. Because I think that there were a lot of speculation in the media that Russia didn't expect to uh, this conflict to last so long. But actually, I especially double-checked uh, all the speeches and statements by Putin, and I didn't 
find any uh, point in which he would say that Russia would conquer Ukraine in two or three days. It wasn't actually the initial plan at all. And I think that it's uh, what uh, what the media misinterprets because uh, from the very beginning, we and even now, we still don't know the final uh, goals of this operation except for, for some general phrases like denazification and demilitarization. But it's not, you know, like very exactly formulated aims because such aims can be achieved in a very long period of time because if we speak about denazification or demilitarization uh, it means that the country should be uh, stripped of all the weapons which uh, it uh, has been uh, gaining over the last time and so it means that even uh, when the operation is over there would be people who would still have these weapons and they could use it for example in a kind of uh, resistance insurgency yes insurgency absolutely and so uh, it's also a big question and i think that uh, we uh, at least uh, i have never heard from russian authorities uh, any timelines of this uh, operation so i think that uh, that's the point which is not presented quite correctly by the media and uh, why uh, your question about resistance it's also a good point because uh, we also didn't hear a word about Putin saying that Ukraine's, uh, as also media portrays, uh, that Ukraine's would uh, meet Russian troops with flowers, saluting to them, etc. It wasn't also quite a point uh, raised by President from the very beginning. He has never actually mentioned it. And I think that it what we put into the mouth of the officials, uh, but it's not uh, actually what's uh, happening exactly. Right. You you spoke earlier about uh, uh, Putin's meeting with the German uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and that's something I was curious about because uh, when the Chancellor recently announced a sharp hike in defense spending for Germany uh, exceeding two percent, and he in that speech he spoke of the looming threat of a within quotes a Russian Empire. Now, that's a very strong word uh, to use, and less than two weeks ago he was actually opposed to halting Nord Stream 2 and he was one of the uh, uh, I mean he was actually one of the European leaders who was hesitant uh, to impose uh, the harsher kind of sanctions that was coming from across the Atlantic so how do you view Germany's sudden and really sharp hostility towards Russia compared to their own stand earlier and uh, where does that leave uh, Russia's options in terms of mending this uh, relationship yeah, very good point. And actually, uh, I would like to say that uh, this German absolutely 180% uh, change and turn in its uh, policy towards Russia also marks a new chapter of international relations. And I mean, Germany is just re the representative of the Western community as a whole, because uh, you mentioned absolutely correctly that German Germany was the only actually country within the Western community which tried to pursue kind of uh, neutral and pragmatic relations with Russia. And now when Germany just turns uh, around uh, in its policy means that we are going to face an absolutely new international environment in the years to come. And why Germany did so? I think that uh, we all know that Russia laid down its own red lines. And for Russia, this uh, the, the most important red line was for NATO to leave uh, Ukraine. 
So for NATO not to allow Ukraine at any time to become its full member state. And I think that for Germany, such kind of red line, although not uh, pronounced openly, was uh, that Russia would uh, not uh, try to change the borders uh, in European uh, in European uh, territory. So, and uh, Germany before that, when it was the only country promoting the Nord Stream 2 project and doing other business with Russia, Germany at least could uh, defend its positions, saying that they are pragmatic and that they do business, they don't, don't do politics. But when Russia launched this military operation, Germany was uh, left without this only argument of doing business uh, without doing uh, high politics. And actually, I think Germany didn't have any other choice uh, if it, uh, if it uh, wouldn't like to be uh, internationally criticized and especially criticized by its allies of NATO and um, its uh, uh, just uh, neighbors, neighbor states. Of course, it didn't have any other choice. And I think so, that for Germany, it was the only uh, possible option uh, judging by this ongoing uh, confrontation and escalation. But uh, the point is that we'll see that Germany brings us an absolutely new uh, strategic environment regionally and internationally as well. Right. Uh, w- one of the uh, things related to the change in uh, German stance is, of course, uh, the impact of uh, the sanctions. And, and in the West, what Western media, what one reads is that I mean, there, there, there has been uh, the kind of sanctions have gone along with the kind of sentiments that one could probably uh, uh, describe as uh, Russophobia, so to speak, because we have been there are some instances of Russian authors being uh, taken out of university syllabuses. There are Russian cats being taken off uh, cat uh, organizations. Uh, uh, Russian uh, oncologists are now getting isolated. Uh, Russian Paralympian Olympics are getting uh, sort of excluded from sports. And the underlying logic given is that this could probably, uh, by applying pressure on the Russian uh, citizens and population, turn them against Putin and probably uh, provoke a regime change uh, or whatever. So how how do you think this logic will work? Do you think there is substance to this logic that by applying extreme pressure on the Russian population, they will eventually turn around and blame Putin for bringing down this kind of extreme hardship on them and therefore uh, trigger a regime change? Is that something which is possible? Well, speaking about uh, sanctions, uh, I think that we should uh, just divide them into two categories. The first bench of sanctions is economic financial sanctions, which are going to loom large over the Russian economy uh, over the coming years, because, of course, they are going to significantly uh, influence uh, the Russian financial and banking environment uh, inside the country uh, and they are actually as president biden uh, and pre- and as representatives of the great britain argued so those sanctions are aimed at uh, completely destroying the russian economy and so of course they are going to have a lot of and very significant impact on russian economy but uh, i think that anyway uh, speaking about the full collapse of economy, it's not the case here because if Russian economy collapses, it means that Russia couldn't just barely deliver on its uh, supplies of oil and gas 
to the United States and to Europe and to Asia. And if uh, such negative consequence of Russian economy or complete uh, destruction could occur, it means that the whole world is going to uh, go under a very huge recession, which we haven't seen in decades, absolutely. And uh, each person uh, in every part of the world will feel these consequences. So I think that the United States and European Union are not going to go that far in imposing uh, some kind of extremely severe sanctions. Although uh, those sanctions which have already been established are quite painful for the economy. And uh, speaking about the second type of sanctions, it's uh, those sanctions which are aimed, as you said, at uh, people, uh, and they are kind of uh, political or something like that. They're aimed at President Putin's close uh, circle of the people, uh, so-called oligarchs, uh, and uh, so it uh, uh, these sanctions uh, are aimed at their properties, at their money, in order to uh, make them feeling very uh, nervous and uh, making them uh, try to somehow influence the president's decisions. I also don't think that it's a point here because the pressure on the, on the president's circle has been uh, mounting over the recent years and sanctions against some of the Russian top uh, uh, business elite uh, were also introduced following uh, 2014 and situation around Crimea and everything like that. So I don't think that is going to uh, have a direct impact on what Putin's uh, on his plans and on his mind as well. But speaking about ordinary people, I think that although now it's a really a very huge wave of R- Russia phobia in Europe and in other Western countries with students being uh, dispelled from the universities, etc. I think that with time this all go- will be gone because ordinary people, uh, I think that they will uh, use their sober mind uh, without uh, falling into all these kind of nationalistic sentiments because uh, prosecuting the Russians just because of their nationality, it sounds, you know, uh, not uh, something which is uh, quite accurate for the, to th- uh, for the 21st century. Uh, and especially uh, not uh, a trait of liberal democratic countries, because we know that all over the world, people are never judged by their nationality. They are judged by their deeds and actions. And it's absolutely uh, incorrect to uh, blame all the people who are just Russians for the mistakes or for the policies which are interpreted to be mistakes uh, done by the officials or by government organizations. It's absolutely different. And I think that with time, uh, people, and even nowadays in Europe, uh, I, I heard another stories when uh, people were supportive, when professors were speaking up, saying that uh, Russians uh, are not, uh, uh, should not be criticized because it's absolutely unacceptable to uh, blame people for their nationality. I think that those uh, times have already gone. Right. Now, speaking of uh, Russia's options in terms of uh, surviving the sanctions, one of the factors which has been spoken of a lot is China. And uh, and the question here is, how to what extent will China go uh, towards bailing out Russia from the sanctions? Because there have been some reports already uh, that two of China's biggest banks, Bank of China and uh, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, have already started restricting 
their financing of Russian commodities. And also the West is a much bigger market for Chinese goods and services compared to Russia, which has a much smaller population and so on. So how will uh, Russia manage uh, if under the threat of uh, US sanctions, China uh, is unable or unwilling to go all the way in bailing out Russia economically? Well, so far it uh, happens exactly as you said, that a lot of Chinese, uh, even government uh, organizations, have suspended cooperation with Russian counterparts. And adding to your list of examples, I would like to say that just yesterday, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, to which China and India are the largest shareholders, also suspended all the operations in Russia. And today, uh, Chinese ports uh, stopped uh, receiving uh, the supplies of fish from Russian companies. And I think that here is a very... Uh, special question because uh, we also, except for China, we also uh, saw India being quite neutral in its uh, interpretation of the events which are going on the ground. And India also tried uh, and already launched the policy how it could trade in Russia with national currencies. Because, for example, uh, Russia and India have been uh, trading in uh, the military equipment in national currencies already for uh, quite a time. And China and Russia also has uh, have done the same in terms of trade in the oil and gas. And so I think that uh, China and Chinese companies now uh, try to have a pause uh, and understand how they can react to this situation without falling under secondary sanctions of the United States and its allies, and at the same time without uh, harming its uh, good relations with Russia. So China is nowadays is in a very, very awkward position because uh, it uh, just uh, needs to do two absolutely opposing things. So it needs to maintain uh, friendship with Russia and at the same time maintain those very vibrant economic relations with the West uh, of which you've just spoken. And I think that the uh, outcome one of the possible outcome of this situation could be for Russia and China to increase the trade in national currencies and maybe to do business on the level of uh, state banks. And for example, Bank of China, uh, although Russia was also under the sanctions after 2014, Bank of China still uh, cooperated closely with uh, Russian state banks and uh, it avoided Uh, sanctions being imposed on it. So I think that China will try to navigate these turbulent waters, maybe in the way of trying to trade in Russia, uh, not in uh, such a kind of direct way of trading in dollars or euros, it will uh, switch to national currencies. And at the same time, we still haven't heard any of Chinese companies leaving Russia. For example, Huawei, is uh, still operating on the territory of Russia. And the same can be said about some other companies. For example, AliExpress Russia uh, also has uh, never raised any concerns or uh, plans about abandoning the country. So Chinese companies uh, now still operate um, in Russia and they have uh, never criticized it and never expressed any uh, attempts uh, to leave the country. 
right but but if you take something like the aviation sector for example you know the the the, the airspaces have been closed and uh, russian uh, russia doesn't operate its own make its own uh, uh, commercial uh, flight engines and the boeing uh, has suspended airbus has suspended uh, supplying spare parts and uh, it could also uh, some according to some analysts affect uh, russia's uh, spare parts for its fighter aircraft and so on so are these sanctions really going to uh, bring uh, uh, activity in these domains to a complete halt as many seem to expect uh, yes speaking about the aircraft industry and passengers flights it's really very uh, important aspect because uh, russia uh, is very dependent on the western and uh, american and european supplies of the spare parts for its aircrafts and uh, as far as i know it's more than 70% dependent on uh, according to the uh, estimations by russian uh, news outlets uh, it's dependent on these uh, um, supplies and nowadays i heard that the government has uh, conducted a special uh, meeting on this situation in aircraft industry and uh, st- they want to try to infuse uh, the investments into this uh, domestic production but of course it will take years to absolutely create uh, the in-house uh, industry uh, with the production and with the uh, maintenance etc and so uh, for now i guess that russia could use the uh, aircraft that could lease the aircraft for example from china uh, it's not a great problem because china has a very expanded passengers fleet and it could lend some of its aircrafts to Russia on a lease basis. And uh, Russia could do the same with Turkey or with other countries because uh, not all of the states uh, introduced uh, the same sanctions uh, as the United States and European Union. India, by the way, has also not uh, imposed uh, such kind of harsh sanctions. Uh, The main point for Russia now, as far as I see it, is just to try to diversify completely all its economic relations uh, from the west to the east and russia has been pivoting to the east already for some time but this pivot was not you know very active very kind of uh, uh, vivid it was slow and it was dragging on but nowadays i think that russia is going to focus uh, 99% on asia and on its cooperation with india with uh, uh, Southeast Asia with uh, with China, etc. So I think that, and uh, especially when the when Germany and European Union claimed that they are going uh, to completely get rid of dependency on Russian energy supplies by uh, 2030. So th- that in a less than eight years, European Union plans to be absolutely independent in terms of its energy safety from Russia. And uh, for now, it's quite a significant amount of uh, supplies which uh, go from russia to europe so it's also kind of challenge for russian economy to uh, absolutely diversify in such a short period of time because in eight uh, years if the european union plans are implemented as they are stated so it means that russia could not uh, sell its uh, supplies uh, to europe anymore so it means that it needs to find an absolutely new uh, destinations uh, to export because Russian economy highly depends on the export of the energy. And so it means that Russia will work, I think, will focus extremely 
uh, hard on finding uh, Asian um, destinations to diversify its economy. Right. Uh, Daniel, we are running out of time. So one last question before we wind up uh, with this episode of InFocus. So can Russia realistically expect a return to a normalcy when there are no sanctions as such and a friendly Ukraine as well to boot? Or are we headed for a new normal? You spoke about Russia's pivot to the east, for example. Are we headed for a new normal where there will be two blocks like they were in the Cold War? Uh, one Western block with all the developed economies and their uh, allies and a smaller block comprising Russia, China and those countries which are either neutral or allied with them. What do you see? Uh, how do you see these things developing? Well, I think that actually it's not the uh, issue of the future. It's already the issue of the present. It has already happened after the operation has been launched. And I think that now we are not expecting a new normality and new reality. We already live in this reality, but not all of uh, us still just comprehend uh, it. I think that it has already come. But the point uh, is uh, whether it's going to be this new reality and new geostrategy is it going to be uh, same as the Cold War? I think not uh, that it will mimic and copy this uh, two blocks uh, reality. Because uh, today, you know, that even uh, even Russia-China kind of partnership, as we have just understood uh, after all the question, all the examples uh, cited by you of the China state banks holding operations with Russian partners and examples which I added later. It also speaks that Russia-China partnership has its limitation. That Russia partner, Russia-China partnership is not absolutely uh, bound, uh, bound, boundless. It has, of course, its own, uh, each country pursues its own st- state interests. And I think that speaking about one block uh, comprising the United States and its allies and the other block comprising China plus Russia plus other states is not also going to be uh, exactly the architecture of the world which we are just entering. I think that it's going to be more complicated. Maybe some allies and some blocks will reshuffle, will will change with the time. Because, for example, uh, for me, it was quite interesting to follow the India's interpretation of Russian, of the events in Russia, because India is kind of stronghold of the United States in the Pacific policy. And uh, United States, as far as I follow the reports by the international media, the United States has been pressing India uh, over the last time in order to uh, push harder on Russia. But India has refused to do it, to do it uh, so far. And Turkey, which is part of NATO, also strikes a very uh, special position on this uh, uh, confrontation. So uh, we have, and Argentina, for example, mentioned yesterday that it's not going to impose any sanctions on Russia. So here we have a very interesting uh, and absolutely new architecture of the international relations, which we can't still clearly see, but uh, which is already uh, forming and which is, and it's just happening in front of our eyes right now. Right. So you're basically uh, suggesting that uh, the the old post-Cold War uh, era of a unipolar world is sort of coming to an end or if it, is not, if, it is not, if it hasn't ended already and we are moving towards a new world architecture which uh, 
is not quite clear yet, but it is definitely coming uh, and we need to wait and see how uh, these complicated uh, alignments uh, shape themselves. And you did make uh, an interesting point about how the middle power, so to speak, India and Turkey and Argentina are not really uh, easily classifiable in terms of which, which way they're going to pivot on any given issue. So it's a very complicated situation and hopefully we'll come back to this at some point in the future. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and comments on and insights on this uh, developing story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.